Hello, and welcome to another edition of New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom Schult, from the University of British Columbia. Like a number of the books discussed on this podcast, A Guide to Systems Research, Philosophy, Processes, Practice, out from Springer in 2017, was intended to fill gaps in a field that, through its often fitful development across the widely spread branches of its multidisciplinary networks, has found itself in need of comprehensive survey-style textbooks to gather and clarify for upper-level undergraduate and graduate students the assortment of profound insights generated over many decades. With this effort, editors Mary C. Edson, Pamela Buckle-Henning, and Sankar Shankaran have succeeded brilliantly while tackling one of the field's most challenging questions. What are the distinctive ethical and rigorous ways to conduct research on systemic phenomena? A cadre of eminently qualified researchers and practitioners take us around an adroitly articulated cycle of research activity structured around the participatory action research holon laid out in the book's second chapter by John Kinnaman in a radically exciting fashion with profound philosophical implications echoing all the way back to Aristotle's thoughts on causality. Keeping the dissertation writing graduate student in the forefront of its presumed audience, The books takes us carefully and thoroughly through problem structuring, taking action, communicating, and assessing the impact of systems research in a manner that is itself highly systemic and sure to provide expert guidance to both students new to the field and seasoned practitioners looking to make their work ever more rigorous and impactful. Co-editor Pamela Buckle-Henning is every bit as elegantly articulate in conversation as she and her collaborators are in writing making for an engaging and insightful overview of a volume that is a must-have for all serious students and teachers of systems research. So without any further ado, let's turn to my conversation with Pamela Buckle-Henning. Pamela Buckle-Henning, welcome to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us to talk about this fantastic book. It's a pleasure. I love this book. I've told you this already uh, uh, in over email. Uh, I I'm in the middle of teaching a course on uh, wicked problems in uh, international development. And if I could start the course over again today, this would be our textbook because it's just so comprehensive. And and really, there's not a book quite like it uh, in the field, even though uh, many have tried and done good work to try and fill some of the gaps that it fills. But this this volume is so comprehensive and, and fantastic. But before we get to that, uh, can we hear a little more about you, about uh, your academic background, sort of the intellectual trajectory that took you to um, an engagement with systems? Well, first of all, you must tell your department chair to let you teach the course again with this book. We would be pleased to support you in that. Um, me and systems, uh, when I was three years old, I started asking, why do people do what they do? Um, and that led me through a Bachelor of Arts in History and an MBA in Human Resources. And when I was uh, about to start my PhD in Organizational Dynamics, um, I was going to start in January. That December, over the Christmas holidays, I decided I was excited about starting this new part of my life about uh, learning brand new things. So I decided to go into my school's library and go into a section I'd never gone into and pick up a book. And I found myself in this dusty corner of the library where I suspect only my footprints had ever been. And I picked up a book, actually, I think it fell in front of me, called The Turbulent Mirror by John Briggs and David Pete. And it was basically a, a 
illustrated introduction to chaos and complexity. And from then on, every time I had to write a paper or do a project, my brain steadfastly refused to cooperate unless I was incorporating ideas from systems theory. So um, systems grabbed me at that time, even before I realized what was happening, and it hasn't let me go since. Mm-hmm. And now you are a full-time faculty at Adelphi University, right? I am on Long Island and- uh, near uh, New York City. Right. And you teach in a, it's a management program, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, one of the main courses I teach is um, leadership, leadership in uh, complex environments. Right. Excellent. Um, oh, you've got a little friend with you. Oh, too. I'm so that's sorry. Great. I'm going to try. No, and that's <laughs> fine. I have two at home that often show up in these podcasts as well. So. <laughs> Dear. <laughs> I'll try to convince um, them that's not a good idea to be chattering at us. No, we, we don't mind at all. Um, so can you uh, tell us a little bit about the genesis of this book? It's it's quite interesting. I know it, it stems from some conversations at the International Federation for Systems Research uh, in a series I believe they used to call the Conversations. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of the book? Yeah, it does. Here's, you know, everybody in the involved in the book might have a different story. Here's my story. The International Society for the System Sciences um, in 2011 was meeting at the University of Hull in the UK. And that year, a woman named Mary Edson won the Vickers Award for Best Student Paper. When she got up um, to accept her award for uh, an exceptional paper, she said to the audience there, so this paper that I've written, thank you for telling me it's good, is it systems research? And the question was not so much, it was not born of naivete, but rather it was a challenge to the systems community. What actually makes something systems research as opposed to any other kind of research? So I've come to understand if Mary has any superpower, actually, I think she has many, it is that she has a remarkable ability to gather really interesting and diverse collections of people together. So fast forward to 2014 at the IFSR meeting in Austria. She got a group of people together, eight of us sitting in a room, people who had among, amongst us all had lived and worked in Canada, the United States, Kenya. Rwanda, India, Australia, Germany, with training in history, psychology, physics, organizational studies, leadership studies, cybernetics, ecology, law. She got eight group of eight people together sitting looking at each other saying, okay, who are we? Why are we together? And what is systems research? Now for some time the quest the question rotated around the room in the vein of, is it just one of those things you know it when you see it? If it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, is it a duck? Incidentally, we couldn't, Springer would not allow us to put a duck on the cover of our book, although we did think that might be a good idea. So we're trying to figure out what is systems research. The conversation morphed to a, what kind of book do I wish I had when I was starting out on my systems research life. Each of us were asking ourselves that. We could point to other great exemplars in research methods, a book by Cresswell. I was taught with Bickman and Raj, books by Lincoln and Denzen. We sat over lunch with another colleague who was working with a different IFSR team. And we said, if you had a new PhD student who asked you to recommend 
a book on systems research, what would you say? And he named instantly named a book, which was a very well-regarded book on soft systems methodology. And we realized there, this is what it is. Systems research, the systems world is, is a big tent. We've got people on in systems dynamics, systems engineering, cybernetics, critical systems heuristics, and there are great books in all of those areas. But are there any research principles that transcend any of those specific research, systems research subdisciplines? And so since we weren't confident that any such book um, existed, we decided we probably ought to try and figure out how to write it. And that was an opportunity for, I, th I think, to continue the friendship that we gained over that week together in Austria. Um, and it just became a book, which I think was just a, a really fun, it, they're fun people with a tre tremendously formidable minds and a great generosity of spirit. We like to laugh together and think together. And a book came of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a remarkable book it is. And it's interesting you mentioned you mentioned SSM, and I think maybe one of the reasons. First of all, I think SSM soft systems methodology has much to recommend it as a methodology, and at the same time, I think uh, part of its prominence is probably because it has uh, one of the most comprehensive sort of introductions to it that lays out um, types of uh, of methodology and and sort of uh, structured processes of research uh, in the way that it does. So it gives SSM a kind of head start over some other thoughts in the field because it is so so well laid out. And so this book, uh, and yeah, and the chapter, uh, there's a chapter in the book in which SSM gets mentioned along with a number of other uh, paradigms of research uh, so that they're, they're getting a more sort of equal treatment in terms of the different um, methods on offer. We were pretty. We were pretty lucky. We were learning from a lot of mm. masters, uh, both in research methods, broadly speaking, and in systems research methods yeah. as well. So there's a grounding of this book in general, uh, and it's interesting that there seems to be a kind of oscillating uh, streams through this book. That uh, one in a very philosophical kind of vein, and one in a in a, I would say, perhaps more pragmatic kind of vein, but they do speak to each other throughout, but they also sort of oscillate a little bit. And there's the two chapters uh, in which John Kinnaman is involved, which are very, very philosophical and provide a kind of grounding uh, for the book. It's also very, very um, dense material. And the other chapters, some of them, uh, they're clearly grounded in that, but one doesn't have to have fully grasped, I think, the, all of the dimensions of the ph philosophical underpinnings to be able to use some of the really pragmatic stuff in, in say, the chapters about structuring, uh, structuring research or reporting research, etc. But I wanted to spend just a minute on this idea of the um, participatory, participatory action research colon or the sort of cycle and how that sort of grounds this book. Right. So... John has a real passion for trying to understand frameworks and models that really, I think the founders of general systems theory would, would smile upon. Uh, frameworks and models that really apply uh, in, in a real, real variety of contexts. And so he works to write um, from that stance. This, his premises are these. A, a system 
is a whole unit of nature, and it can be analyzed using a participatory action research framework. What is that? He sees that uh, throughout history, throughout many, many disciplines, these four quadrant, four category frameworks have emerged. And he finds that a useful framework to understand how a researcher can look at the different cycle of causes that is at work in any given system. Now, in terms of multiple kinds of causation, he's pulling from Aristotle there. Um, Typically, uh, causation has been a matter of uh, uh, really hierarchy. There's this unknowable force at the top that acts on inert substances on the bottom, and so cause happens in in a straight line. Well, in systems, we have come to understand causation is better understood in in terms of cyclical um a cyclical framework instead so what john tries to do is combine aristotle with participatory action research which is commonly understood in a number of um research traditions and he takes aristotle's um Elements of causation, which let's look at this in terms of elements of a system. If you look at a whole lot of systems, you see some physical things, material things, which he, which John correlates to the observation element of participatory action research. We observe physical things in a system. Aristotle also spoke about agency, efficient causes, which John maps onto an action element of participatory action research. Aristotle spoke about formal causation, which we could think of in terms of design, organization issues, which John maps to the planning element of participant, uh, participant, uh, now I'm going to tangle myself up, of par, we'll go with that. Yeah, we'll go with that. We'll go with par. And finally, uh, Aristotle was speaking of final causes, the purposes for being, which he maps to a reflective element. So he said good systems research is going to look at four different forms of causation, material, efficient, formal, and final. And good systems research compels a researcher to engage in a number of different processes, observational processes, action processes, planning processes, and reflection processes. And each of the writers in varying ways tried to keep that um, that framework, that mental model in our minds as we were writing about the different parts of systems research we were responsible from. Um, f- from the philosophical stuff Deborah Hammond spoke to, um, to the different stages of systems research that um, were walked through by um, by by John, by Mary and Louis Klein, by um, uh, Shankar Sankaran, Will Vary. We all tried to anchor our thinking towards observation, action, planning, reflection. Observation, action, planning, reflection. And sometimes we would go in one direction and sometimes we'd take that cycle in the other direction as a, and as a thought experiment that can be really instructive for um, a systems researcher as well. So we decided that PAR would be our anchoring point and John laid out sort of the philosophical justification for such an underpinning uh, that the rest of us uh, utilized. 
Mm-hmm. It's very, very powerful, uh, really rich, very powerful, provides a structure for the book and also a structure for the way of, th- of thinking about systems research itself. And then and even more boldly, uh, the notion that, and this uh, this caught my attention too, because it speaks back to something I was talking with George Mobus about in a couple episodes ago on this podcast, about the capacity of sufficiently complex systems to contain models themselves. And that this idea that, in fact, this is such a prevalent framework and we see it, um, we find uh, isomorphies of it throughout so many domains because it actually is inherent in, in the natural world. That this is, in fact, a model for learning and that speaks all the way back to Gregory Bateson's idea of, of imminent mind and nature uh, and, and, of course, drawing heavily on Robert Rosen's work as well. I know. Isn't it exciting? Yeah, it's really it's it's really amazing, and this idea that well, if we came out of nature, if we're natural, right? Why wouldn't some of our processes? Of course, we impose our ideas, and you know, there's a, obviously a very important and strong constructivist, reflectivist, a uh, reflexivist streak in systems and cybernetic thinking, which is really important because to recognize we're imposing our frameworks, etc. But John opens it up a little bit more and says, yeah, but you know, if we are natural beings, if we are of the same substance as the things around us, maybe the, the ways that we behave and think and act are not so unique to us that maybe if, if, if our ideas, if we come from nature and our ideas then come from us, perhaps they reflect back something that's more prevalent in nature than we might think. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, as I say, very compatible with this challenge to the essential view in science that the world is dualistic. There is mind and matter and they are separate and they have nothing to do with each other. So I think, um, I think um, assumptions like that are good to rattle sometimes. Great. So there's so as you've outlined for us, the, the book takes us around a sort of the cycle of, of, uh, of a in a sense, the participatory action research framework, but incorporating, you know, a lot of expertise from uh, all of the different writers' uh, backgrounds and uh, different models. Like you said, there's SSM, but there's other other different types of research as well. Um, and I want to just focus uh, for a moment on, uh, well, for longer than a moment, on your chapter, uh, which talks about the competencies that a systems researcher needs. It comes a little later in the book, but I want to get to it now, A, because you are the author, and I think that it's it's great to have, you know, if I have you here, that's a chapter I want to really um, plumb the depths of. Uh, but also, I think it, it does... Um, for those out there still considering whether or not systems research is a place for them, it's a really a great way to frame the, the field at large. Yeah, you know, I um, I would attend, started attending systems conferences, and I got this distinct impression when everybody was saying, you know, systems thinking and systems, everybody was smiling and nodding at each other. And I started to have this uneasy sense that everybody assumed we were talking about the same thing, but I'm not convinced that we necessarily were. Because when I would read books on what systems thinking meant, uh, they would basically outline uh, SSM, or they would outline the ontological structure of a system, inputs and transformations and outputs. And I thought, well, surely knowing what a system is doesn't mean I can think systemically. That doesn't work any more than... Me teaching you a lot about Japan means that you could speak Japanese. It's, that, that doesn't, it doesn't follow. So I started to understand, I think I started to understand that my 
age-old question, why do people do what they do, was becoming, how do people perceive what they perceive? It seems to me it's quite an extraordinary thing that some people have an ability in disparate objects or ideas um, or people or processes that people can some some people can perceive that as a system keeping in mind of course that systems are sometimes spread across time and space what is involved in being able to perceive that so i realized i was not in the realm of knowledge about systems I wasn't even necessarily in the realm of methodology or methods about systems. I was trying to understand for myself what were the competencies a person needed to understand systems. And I kept asking the question, asking the question, and asking the question. And by the end of the week in Austria with my team, they said, well, you're going to write the chapter on competencies. And I said, but I don't know what they are. And they said, well, that's a great opportunity for you to figure it out and write something. <laughs> so um, I tried to deconstruct my own thought processes through systems projects I had um, done myself. I tried to uh, deconstruct the way my mind worked to perceive systemic things, systemic dynamics. And my great concern, of course, was that my view would be too limited, that my view would be too colored by my expertise in qualitative research methods, by my expertise in working with human systems. But a part of our project, this book writing project, we solicited a group of PhD students um, from different countries to edit and critique each of the chapters in their early draft formats. And a researcher, a reviewer came back saying, you know, most of my work has been in, in um, boundary critique and, 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 and human systems. So um, I hadn't considered most of these competencies um, because the writer seems not to be coming from that orientation. I thought, that's great. If, if my work isn't necessarily immediately obvious for a critical systems researcher. I therefore had a work to do in making it more understandable, but it told me that I was not just speaking to a narrow, narrow audience um, because we really wanted this book to be as relevant to people who were systems engineers as to people who um, were doing um, critical systems projects. We really were trying to speak to a wide audience. So I had differentiated knowledge from skill. I had a strong sense that the kind of skills a person needs to do systems research um, had to be in some ways different from other kinds of research. So I focused on um, our ability, people's abilities to perceive different things, the ability to perceive the presence of holes and parts, the ability to perceive complexity, order, change, relationships, information, the ability to generalize well, <laughs> um, the ability to cope with uncertainty, um, the ability abilities to do with reflexivity. I decided these, I, I think, were some of the most crucial 
perceptual capacities that I could not imagine any systems researcher being without. Can you pick one or two of those and tell us a little bit more about uh, how that shows up in the systems work and and how uh, and just a little more about your views on those on a, on a couple of the of the ones that you love to come back. Obviously, as in all things with systems, they're equally important. You can't pick the most important one; they're not hierarchical. But uh, a couple that you want to share just a little bit more about in terms of uh, how important they've been for you or the insights you had while while compiling this list and and digging into each one of them? We know that complex systems have an extraordinary amount of of information happening within them. We we have the understanding that systems are communicative. They They are communicating all the time. And so you can tell somebody, fine, a complex system has a lot of information in it, but when you are trying to research something that we would characterize in terms of complexity, we get into challenges of, of signaling. It's, it's obvious when there are strong signals, right? When you or I, where you are living or where I am living, when a strong weather front is coming, the, the uh, meteorologists know this is the kind of weather we're going to get, and this is probably when it's going to happen. The pernicious challenge of complex systems is that a lot of what occurs isn't, we wouldn't describe as strong signaling, we would describe as weak signaling. And so the issue becomes, how can we perceive information in in occurrences going on with a a system that um, many people would just consider um, random information or noise or um, noise? junk that that is being communicated what how can we more clearly more quickly perceive weak signals if tom you can figure out the answer to that a nobel prize is in the works for you um so so perceiving information then is 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 a very difficult thing and i think what systems researchers develop the capacity to do is to pick up on signals um at an earlier stage maybe at a more weak stage than uh, non-systems researchers, if you will. A systems researcher fundamentally has to have competency engaging with the unknown. We know that complex systems are rife with uncertainty, inexactness, ambiguity, and the capacity to engage with that is a very complex cognitive and emotional skill. Um, when I've spoken with and worked with graduate assistants and they're, I can see they're overwhelmed and confused. I tell them, great, this means you're exactly in the territory you should be in. Because if you feel confident that you have understood everything relevant there is to understand about a complex system, you're not going deep enough. So fundamentally, complexity researchers, systems researchers have to have a a higher tolerance to carry a lot of information, a higher tolerance to cope in very stimulus-rich environments, and they have to have the emotional capacity to um, avoid all of those biases we tend to engage when we're in threatening situations. This is confusing. I'm going to avoid it. Um, This seems way too intimidating. I'm just going to chop it into small bits. Um, and, and try to analyze it instead of synthesize it. There are all kinds of ways that researchers deal with the unknown. The best and, well, the best, the easiest ways for us to deal with complicated things as researchers are to defer to tradition. 
The challenge is much scientific tradition is about finding ways to decomplexify otherwise complex environments. We smooth data, we get rid of outliers, we reduce noise. And that's precisely what a systems research cannot do. Therefore, a systems researcher, it seems to me, has to have a much higher tolerance and attunement to ambiguous data and a willingness and capacity to inquire both in a wider, um, we might say, breadth of um, uh, of inquiry, taking a look at what wider spheres of context than non-systems researchers might, but also depth in terms of being willing to cope with, reckon with, dive into deeper and deeper layers of complexity than non-systems researchers would. So a lot of emotional stuff going on and curiosity, maintaining one's curiosity goes a long way to help uh, from uh, devolving into panic and despair. Hmm. <laughs> It also, you know, was reminiscent or reminding me of the word action, of course, in the participatory action research idea that there's a, there's a need to act in the system, on the system, um, be inside it, poke around inside it, uh, you know, respectfully and with care and with an ethical consideration for all of everyone involved in the system. But that, um, I think it's in the last chapter, uh, Gary Metcalf, is it Gary, Gary and, is it, and Mary Edson? Gary, is she the co-author uh, Metcalf on that and final Mary Edson chapter? Wrote it together, yes. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the notion that, uh, there's action required that it's not as, as it, it's not about, um, s- sitting outside a system, looking at data sets and searching for statistical significance. It's about getting inside and there's an active, there's moments where you act upon the system and you're inside it and you are a, a participant in it as well. That seemed really important. To this definition. Yeah, absolutely. Gary and Mary make that very clear. There are a number of possible aims you can have when we're engaging in research. We can be attempting to develop theory, to test theory, to create change. Ultimately, I think what Gary and Mary are encouraging researchers to do is to bring those together to generate larger and more specific models um, about the, the systemic nature of the world in which we operate. And it also, what you were saying about these competencies also reminds me of something that Deborah Hammond says in the opening chapter around in setting the sort of philosophical, um, setting the table in a sense, where she says, ultimately, a systemic orientation to research might be seen as nurturing a transition from control to collaboration, from competitive relationships to a greater recognition of interdependence, from hierarchical to participatory decision-making processes, and from objectivity to reflexive self-awareness. Yeah, absolutely. I think she does a nice job in that chapter of talking about sort of different views from an egocentric view of research to a homocentric to an ecocentric. She does uh, good work in terms of what is a fundamental ethic of partnership um, um, versus an ethic of domination. And those things are crucial in the world. They're certainly crucial for um, systems researchers to be reflecting on um, and, and explicitly talking about where what ethical choices they're making with respect to research uh, that they're undertaking. She also talks at the, uh, the beginning of her chapter, um, and this is echoed throughout the book, of the difference between research on systems 
and a systemic approach to research and that these two need to combine or overlap. Can you say a little bit more about those distinctions and how they speak to each other? Sure. When I go to um, systems research meetings, I'm, I'm brought into a room with lots of different kinds of people. Some people are are fundamentally fascinated with the nature of systems in and of themselves. What is it that makes something a system? What are the structures of systems? What are the dynamics of systems? Um, and, uh, and at an abstract level, in terms of the development of science, we need people doing that kind of research. What is the nature of a system? Um, what is the systemic nature of reality? There are other people, though, who don't necessarily have those interests, skills, uh, um, abilities. They're interested in researching what we might call systemic phenomena. They want to research a uh, an information system, a healthcare system, an agricultural system. That's another aspect of systems research. And then... A third aspect, if you will, is how then in either case do we take a systemic approach to research um, in the research that we do by structuring the problem and the research methods that we're going to do, by taking specific research actions, by reporting in specific ways. There are certainly people in the systems community that privilege or prioritize or prefer one of these, research into the nature of systems, research into systemic phenomena, or systemic approach to research. I, I think I'm pretty um, democratic in this regard. I think we vitally need all three. So uh, sort of we're going to hop from chapter to chapter a little bit. And obviously with limits of time, we don't get to plumb the depths of every single one as much as we'd like, but we'll leave that to readers who need to snap up this book. Um I find the the problem structuring chapter, as I was mentioning, I'd be interested in using this as a textbook. And if I was just to have to be forced to excerpt uh, something, this this problem structuring structuring chapter by Mary Edson and Louis Klein is just so eminently practical. I mean, it really just gives you the lists of questions. That there's a chart of different problem structuring methods. I mean, it really is just so. Uh, laid out in, in such a, a practical uh, way that I, I think it's such a service to um, beginners and those who've been doing this work for a while to get back to uh, making sure that their their structuring is is so thoughtful and and considered. Yeah, I think they did a phenomenal job on that. I um, I'm glad they were the ones put on that um, put on that project. And I think that I think that comes from their backgrounds. Louis has certainly been a PhD supervisor to many people. Um, has worked in complexity and project management. Mary, with her um, background, really as a scholar practitioner, I think they did a lovely job of 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 blending both some sort of theoretical and pragmatic aspects of um, actually structuring and uh, the project you want to, the problem you want to deal with, and then what research design would come through that kind of project. Yeah, it's rigorous, it's thorough. And the, and the, the questions it asks the researcher to consider about their own role, uh, is this a uh, confirmatory inquiry? Is it an exploratory one? Are you going to look, are you going to explore and sort of in the sort of grounded, grounded research tradition, you know, come up with a hypothesis or theory generated following the exploration? Uh, and a really big, important question, how will emergent properties be addressed? Because I, I find that some of the other 
scientific processes that of which I'm aware. Um, and I heard this discussed at the last IEEE conference as well about the idea that, um, and sometimes for system engineers, the the job is to make sure there are no surprises. We want this to run the way we want it to run. How can we do that? Whereas this kind of research uh, is often about, you know, tons of emergence. How, what are you going to do with them? How are you going to account for them? How are you going to wrestle with them? Yeah. And I think Mary and Louis both recognize, look, you've got to think about a project, design a project in terms of what's the purpose of your inquiry why is it important? For whom? What's the scope of your inquiry? And what contributions are you making? Research supervisors vary in their skill or emphasis on any of those. And so we, we really felt, to your point about um, those uh, perspectives that you want, no surprises. Uh, I, I think it was really important for them to try and write a chapter that was even-handed in emphasizing the importance of each of these um, pieces, I think, I think really it's quite crucial. And then we move into taking action in, in chapter five, uh, Shankar Sankaran and, uh, really laying out again, um, starts by looking at, at three choices to proceed, a project management approach, a dissertation approach, and the framework methodology and action, or what he calls FMA approach uh, proposed by Checklin and with some improvements suggested by, by Ray Eisen, who's another figure who's work shows up in this book a lot. So again, laying out really specific uh, systems research models, going quite in depth with, uh, with action research um, and uh, bringing in the, the level of reflexivity. But again, this notion about taking action inside a system is, is really critical. Is there anything you want to say about what, what needs to be in a systems researchers, researchers mind when it comes to the types of actions they take with inside the system that they're exploring? Shankar is um, has a background as a project manager, and he uh, is a, f- a fantastic person for whom you'd you'd want as as, as your PhD supervisor because he would set you to do all your reading and your literature review and your philosophical uh, exploration, and he would sit you down, put a cup of coffee in your hand, and say, "Okay, so what are you going to do?" And he would help you get very practical about that. Um, fundamentally, he's great at helping people to understand what steps would be needed, what actions would have to be taken. But he isn't married to only one viewpoint about the kind of steps that would that, that a person ought to follow. Certainly, if you sit in a room of project managers, you're going to get a very clearly um, justified view of the project management approach to uh, accomplishing a research study. But Shankar says, yes, there's useful things in that, but we can get useful information from systems engineering about what are the pragmatic steps that accompany a successful execution of a project. And then a dissertation perspective. Shankar well knows what many of our readers, hopefully, know, is that when you are doing a research project, you're not executing in a vacuum. There are a number of stakeholders with different agendas who you have to be um, relating with, um, working with, and despite your best laid plans of action, things will go sideways. So his work um, in um, agile project management, d- dealing, helping people work through projects that that gain, go into some really dicey places of uncertainty and ambiguity, I think is is a nice corrective or a nice message to the diligent researcher who makes a plan and then becomes very alarmed when the plan doesn't go as as expected. 
And as you and every researcher knows, when do our plans ever go entirely as we expect, right? <laughs> yeah. And systems research, of course, pushing back against the notion that uh, we're gonna, we have to act only on closed systems and that we can close by putting them in a, in a lab and cutting them off from context and freezing them in this vacuum so they will behave the way we want them to so that we get nice, clean results. This is a whole different domain, a whole different approach. And emergence and messiness is the name of the game. There are not a lot of phenomena that can be very helpfully studied in those closed um, experimental rooms, but uh, there's also a lot of research that needs to be done in considerably messier, wickeder domains, as you and your students no doubt are discussing. Yes, very much so. And it goes back to bon von Bertalanffy, you know, in sort of opening up the field with uh, general systems theory saying, you know, these are open systems. This is This is just what we're dealing with here and why he felt so strongly that new methods and approaches were needed because like you say, there's great, great value, obviously. And you look at the achievements of, uh, of the human species based on, on those kinds of laboratory uh, work, but there are certain phenomena that we just can't tackle in that way. And so we've got to use different methods, but we still have to do our work with as much rigor yeah. as we possibly can. Yeah. And that's, of course, been, uh, you know, some of the pushback against cybernetics or systems, or I mean, I've heard cybernetics dismissed by people as, well, it's just a set of, of analogies and metaphors, right? It's, and so, of course, I would argue that metaphor and analogy, well, and other people argue, I think, including John Kinnaman, that actually these are really important parts of scientific language. And you can quote people like... Uh, uh, Heisenberg, etc., saying, actually, no, don't underrate the power of metaphor and analogy in as genuine scientific language. I, th I agree, and but but find ways to do it discipline with discipline. Use an analogy, use metaphor um, with discipline, rather than you know we're not talking a wild west uh, any metaphor goes kind of thing. Exactly, yeah, and 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 that focus on rigor uh, is is again one of the really sponsoring. Um, um, motivations and in the ethos of this book, which then flows very, very nicely from that chapter into Will Vary's chapter, chapter six on reporting. And the other thing you mentioned, which I, another thing that makes this book so valuable is it never does take its eye off the graduate students out there who are reading these, this book and who are looking for, uh, for, for some guidance and this sense of knowing who your audience is that you're reporting to uh, the, the specifics of, um, whether it's a dissertation type report, whether it's uh, stakeholders who are looking for some kind of positive social change, uh, it all flows very nicely through, through Will Vary's chapter. Yeah, we certainly are hoping that what we've written is valuable to people whose research or career researches at any stage of their career. But definitely we were thinking about early career researchers in particular, um, when we were writing the book. Will, um, I have a lot of respect for the way Will writes uh, with incredible elegance and beauty. He's got a formidable mind um, working in his own research life at, with incredibly abstract ideas. But I think he, in this chapter, he does a really great job to um, write in very um, understandable, practical ways about how, how do you write up a research study um, a systems research study. This is very difficult when you think about systems being phenomena that aren't linear, that don't have a tend not to have a specific beginning part. So, how do you put in linear language um, something that fundamentally is not a phenomenon that is not linear? So, mm -hmm. he tries to help us do that by by 
saying, here are the things you've got to communicate. You've got to, you've got to communicate on the context, the system context. Um, what was the identified system that you were researching? You've got to write about the system's content. What is, what are the components of the system, the dynamics of the system? And you've got to also reflect on systems concept, examining systems theory itself. And these things have to be informing um, the way you write, the timing which you write, um, and, and I'd say the discipline that you write. He, he says you've got to resist the temptations of recording your own personal opinions and unsupported viewpoints. You know, we have permission in our various research traditions to make certain assumptions, but systems researchers very often are pressed with the responsibility of writing in a way that a systems-informed audience will grasp and respect and also a non-systems-informed audience. And so I think there is a higher bar of clarity and explicitness demanded of the systems researcher that um, he, he, he points out um, and, and helps the reader figure out how to write up the results in a way that's going to be um, going to be well-written. He also, I think, does an amazing job. He makes a chart of common errors of omission mm-hmm. that often um, less good systems research um, um, leaves out. Mm-hmm. In Wills, in all of our chapters, we were trying to identify, okay, given the topic we're writing about in our chapter, what are some of the key questions that a researcher needs to keep in mind? What are some of the key um, contentious views you're going to have to grapple with? What is the difference between doing this idea well? What's what's the difference between thinking about systems philosophy well versus excellently? And Will was talking about, I mean, what's the difference between writing up research results well or in an excellent way from a systems research perspective. Mm -hmm. So he's trying really to help a writer shoot for a very high bar, a very high standard, um, and help delineate. Uh, Here are some of the things that you're quite possibly going to forget. Here are some of the things that you have to be clear about. Here are some of the things that you've got to include if you're going to be complete. Um, And I think he, he writes it itself in a very in a very beautiful way. Mm-hmm. I agree. And these lists of questions, as you say, that that uh, most of the chapters are filled with these lists of questions. Sometimes there's tables and charts, and that yeah, that list you mentioned of uh, common errors of omission. As soon as I read that, of course, I started running through past papers of my own and going, hmm, "How did I do?" You and me both. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's uh, it's another thing that makes this book such an exemplary uh, book that, to be used as a textbook because you can really structure if you're an, if you're an instructor you can really structure a lot of your curriculum and the and the pedagogy of your course around the way that the questions in the book uh, are structured to guide you to guide your students through a cycle of this kind of research over the course of a semester so it's it's part of its great strength yeah That's we sort of help yeah We'll sort of close the circle uh, of one cycle, of course, with chapter eight on evaluating the impact with Mary Edson and, and Gary Metcalf. And we've talked a little bit about this uh, uh, this chapter a little bit already. But 
can you give us some of your thoughts about as you close a cycle of of this research, which may be the end simply because that's the stopping point that the structure of this inquiry has demanded. It's time to turn in your dissertation or that's where the fundings run out, et cetera, or perhaps you're moving into another cycle. What, what are your thoughts and how do you go about uh, evaluating the impact of the work that, that you've been involved in in ways that, that speak to stuff in this chapter and also some of your own other insights into that notion of impact? Yeah, you know, um, when you're working with a cyclical phenomena, like as systems tend to be, uh, figuring out where to put a period at the end of the sentence is not at all easy. I think, um, I don't remember, you might, I think there was a a famous, um, I don't know, Italian movie director who said a great work of, a great film is never finished, it's just abandoned at some point. Um, There comes a time when research has to be concluded and one way to assess impact is to say, you know, did I answer the question that I thought I was going to answer? Did I complete the research actions that I said I was going to complete? Did I develop a model, do some research, and then find that my research empirically proved or disproved some of the ideas that that my model suggested, those are some kinds of answers to the when are you done question. But for me, for me, impact personally gets to issues of uh, ethics. What has been, um, how has the system of inquiry, uh, my phenomena of inquiry, excuse me, how has it been um, impacted by my having observed it, by my having perhaps tried to change it through the course of my research? How has it been affected, altered? How have I, the researcher, been affected and altered? So I look at issues of impact outward and also inward. Um, Outward because presumably my phenomena of study continues after my walk alongside it has come to an end. And the research that I've done, how how is that going to affect that system going forward? But also me in terms of my development as a future researcher, what new insights do I have that I didn't have before? What new competencies has I developed that I haven't before? Um, And ethically, what feels to me like the unfinished business Sometimes that will jump you into another research cycle with the same phenomena or with some of the same participants. Sometimes you take that unfinished business into other fields, uh, other research projects. Um, In my work, as might be evident, subjectivity is very significant but increasing well it's not it's not hard to understand that subject subjectivity is notoriously inaccurate so with each research project the impact of that project goes into my box of future papers to write and a main one for me will be issues to do with discipline subjectivity how can a researcher which who is going to be related to perhaps embedded in a system of inquiry, um, utilize their subjectivity in ways that are useful for the project and not detrimental. Because I unfortunately am not a researcher that can neatly bracket 
subjectivity and, and assume it does not affect the work that I do. But I have to become as informed as I can about how it affects the system's work that I do. So impact for me is about the system, it's about me, and it's about what future work feels imperative now based on um, how I've um, how I've lived through the study I've done and how the system has lived through my poking and prodding around it. Mm. Well, that's beautiful segue to our final question, which is always, what are you working on now? You mentioned future papers and ideas for future work. What do you, uh, what sorts of projects are you involved in at the moment? I feel like I'm drowning in working papers. I have so, this is a happy problem. I have, I have about seven working papers um, drafted at this point in time that need to find homes. Um, you talked about how we just don't like surprises, right? People say you don't want surprises. I'm a, I'm a management uh, researcher. And of course, uh, if something happens that's a surprise, that's viewed as a failure of management. I am um, beginning some work with uh, Delia Pembrey-McNamara in Australia. She works in artificial intelligence. And we are beginning work on a paper about purposefully failing in workplaces. And it's just a delicious exploration of, of what we can do to deconstruct the idea of failure and how in a learning environment, how crucial failure is uh, and how we need to question what assumptions, what value judgments we make on uh, feedback systems that happen. So um, uh, my, one of my fun, one of my many fun new projects has to do with uh, failing on purpose, which of course seems to be opening lots of opportunities in my life for failures <laughs> and hopefully lots of opportunities for me to find ways to smile and say, okay, how can I make that failure purposeful? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really vital work. Uh, it's something I've also wrestled with here at, at, uh, at my own home institution where we all understand implicitly that the, uh, that permission to fail and the room to fail is essential to learning. And yet when thing, when it comes right down to it, do our systems actually incentivize and, and actually back that up? Or are we, are we sort of trying to have it both ways where we say, Oh no, failure is absolutely essential to learning, but yet the systems that will uh, either sanction or reward us are not supporting uh, that, that actual philosophy towards learning. Yeah, that's right. Being a learner takes a lot of courage because part of learning is failure. And uh, we are not always in, in surroundings that um, greet failure with open arms and, and a smile on their face. Well, that's great. I very much look forward to that and uh, and all of your future work. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this really, really excellent book. I've been speaking with Pamela Buckle-Henning uh, here on New Books and Systems and Cybernetics a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks very much, Pam. Thank you.